Hey folks, Randy Newberg here, the Hunt Talk Podcast, Randy Newberg Unfiltered, and today we are unfiltered from Helena, Montana. And uh, before I get into the long introduction of who our guest is today, I'm also going to tell you that we got Dan Doty, uh, the producer of this podcast from 0.0, and Giannis Butelis uh, from 0.0. They're here helping us. But we are very honored to have this week's guest, and you can hear him chuckling in the background because he's so modest, but Jim Posowitz is, he is one of the guys when you talk about conservation history, when you talk about guys who've been there and done that, and since everyone calls you Pause, Jim, I think we're going to call it the pause cast this time works for me but anyhow jim and i have a long relationship jim founded orion the hunters institute in 1993 after how many years with fwp well i was with fwp uh steady for 32 years a couple of seasonal years ahead of that uh, but from 61 through 93. Yeah, FWP, for the us in Montana, that's our name for our fish and game agency. For the rest of you, it's Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Um, and so after leaving FWP, Jim hits the circuit talking about hunting behavior, hunting ethics, and then he starts Orion. And I'm not sure how I got sucked into being on your board in 1995. Well, there was a gal, a common acquaintance, uh, Denise Boggs, was telling Gail and I, uh, Gail Joslin, who's my partner and wife, uh, about this accountant down in Bozeman who had an interest in this kind of stuff. (laughs) So that's where the connection was made from Denise Boggs uh, and She sort of introduced you to us, and the rest is, as you point out, history. Yeah, so Jim and I have been through so many discussions of, and I felt, all this time I felt like, and not to uh, offend anyone who believes in the King James Bible, but (laughs) in the conservation world, there's also the King James Bible. It's the Jim Posowitz (laughs) books of... Beyond Fair Chase, Rifle in Hand, Inherit the Hunt, all those. And and I've been reading from those for years and then serving on your board for 15 years. It's uh, We go back a long ways, I guess, is what I I'm saying. I guess we do Jim. when you put it all in a string out in order there. Yeah. So anyhow, you guys are in for a treat. Out on our Hunt Talk forum, um, we've asked people, who do you want for guests on, on the podcast and your name comes up with a lot of regularity Hmm. so i don't know if that's good or bad jim but uh you're you're picked today and that's what we're going to do i think if you've been around as long as i have (laughs) you accumulate uh, a lot of friends and acquaintances and stories and do you accumulate any enemies along the way Oh, yes. <laughs> Actually, you start with those. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing, those of you who ever read Jim stuff, watched him in action, you know that if it was for the benefit of hunting and fishing and conservation and habitat, Jim wasn't going to uh, beat around the bush, I'll say. Uh, if anything, you went right over the bush, mowed it down, and uh, <laughs> mowed down anybody who was standing on the wrong side of the bush. But So one of the things that we want to talk about, Jim, and I don't want to age you, but I'm 50, so you're 30 years older than I am. 
I just passed my 80th checkpoint. Okay. And what that means in the context of conservation is that I was born in the middle of the dirty 30s. Yeah. And the dirty 30s was a period of the drought, the dust bowl, the economic collapse. And the thing I find most interesting about that era was also the year that the hunter conservationists stepped forward and said, no matter how grim things are economically, no matter how dim things are environmentally, we are going to uh, restore the wildlife and the fisheries to this continent. Uh-huh. And I think that was an incredibly important uh, era. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was the president. He called the hunters together, uh, working through primarily his Secretary of Interior, Ding Darling. Yeah. They had the first North American Wildlife Conference in 1936. So you were a year old. I was a year old. I didn't go. (laughs) (laughs) But if we looked out the window of this building, we could see the Placer Hotel in downtown Helena. And that same year, the Montana Wildlife Federation formed. Okay. That same, you know, in that era, that general middle of the dirty 30s, I was uh, a babe. Uh, born in a, in a community on the west shore of Lake Michigan. And on April of 1935, I'm like six weeks old, the biggest dust storm of that era blows, and it takes dust off the Great Plains, dumps millions of tons of sediment in Chicago, darkens New York City and Washington, D.C., and coats the Dexas ships 300 miles out in the Atlantic. Whoa. And I probably sucked that dust (laughs) when I was whaling, you know, for a diaper or a bottle or whatever. And uh, that was, I guess, the introduction to the Great Plains where I would eventually migrate and spend my most of my adult life. So what what was the response hunters had to this dust bowl that you're I mean, for us in today's world, for my generation, it's hard for us to even fathom that. I mean, that that's something we were taught in history, so it seems like it was 500 years ago. Right. But it's tangible today what res- the the end result of the response hunters had to that. Well, the end result was we had a continent that was depleted totally depleted of its wildlife resources. And today, we sit downrange from the decisions made in 1935 and 36 and 37, and we have deer in our cities, bears in our orchards, and goose dung on every golf shoe in America. (laughs) (laughs) And the point was, the, the grassroots hunter and angler, they came together and they said, we're not, we don't have to live this way. And so here's a relationship between the people and the wildlife resources in a democracy. And it's something that was relatively new in in world history. But we took a depleted continent and restored a marvelous abundance to it. And we're not done yet, of course. But uh, I think it's a remarkable environmental achievement. Yeah. And so now in the contemporary context, we're facing problems uh, of a planetary proportion. Right. And the only model that I know of where people in a democracy have done a complete change in an environmental uh, context and done something of con- in continental in its proportion – 
and now we've got to ramp it up to make it planetary. Right. So I think about, all right, there's some farmer, 1938, and hunters kind of collectively are making an ask of that farmer. Hey, I know times are tough. I know the depression is here. I know you need everything possible, but can you accommodate some wildlife that's going to impact your crops? I mean, you think about what kind of an ask that was and what kind of a commitment that was relative to the time. That that That's amazing. And, and then hunters, at the same time, when was Pittman-Robertson? 37? 37. Right. And, and within one year, they right. got Pittman-Robertson. And that's a good point because in today's context, Pittman-Robertson was introduced and brought to signature in 90 days flat. Yeah. <laughs> in today's world, the Congress, that's, they, yeah. they, they can't have lunch in 90 days. But the... Can you outline Pittman-Robertson yeah. just real briefly? Okay, yeah. Pittman-Robertson real briefly is a tax on firearms and ammunition. The manufacturers and the sportsmen all agreed if we're going to have wildlife, we're going to have to fund this thing. And so there was a severance tax put on sales of firearms and ammunition. The hunters and anglers backed it, and the industry backed it. And it produced uh, the, the Fish and Wildlife Restoration Act 1937, valid to this day. The beauty of the act, it was, it was uh, incredibly well drafted. And the, the way it worked is that the states could take their license revenue and match it with federal aid that came from this excise tax, but only if they did not divert any of that license revenue away from wildlife restoration. They locked in the license dollar to stay with the agency to restore wildlife, and they also locked in the federal aid, and they basically uh, bound themselves to one another and had this glorious trip. Yeah. So, go ahead, Giannis. At that time, was there any like protests to the Pittman-Robertson that you know of? Was there, It seemed like it went so smoothly. Was there anybody saying at that time that wasn't for it? Uh, probably just only in the context of uh, people who resisted any form of taxation. But when you had the people to be taxed sitting forward and say, we want to do this, this is Right, it essential. almost feels like back then people were more willing to just give when you talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, they had so little. Right. I mean, they had so much to gain, and uh, it was a pretty tough time. But that was the beauty of it. No matter how tough it was, they saw the beauty and the necessity of conservation, just like the Aggies, they learned it from the soils, you know, context. They knew that the Dust Bowl was a horrible lesson. Right. And, uh, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt appointed a guy named Bennett, I think his name was, the head of the Soil Conservation Service. And his first words were, we were destroying this planet, or this earth, this continent, faster than any other civilization in human history. And uh, he was a tough guy, too. And uh, that put, uh, you know, soil conservation and the whole conservation ethic was became embedded in the people that survived those, those worst hard times. Yeah. And, and you think about that. That's an 11% excise tax that yes. Pittman-Robertson represents. Here we are at the darkest hour of our economic 
times in our country. Greater depression than even the crash in the 1870s. And hunters stand up and say, we want to tax ourselves. We will tax ourselves 11% if we know it's going to wildlife. Right. That is so remarkable. It would be remarkable today when we're having financial prosperity relative to then. But to do it back at that time, to me, just it just strikes me and says, you know what? That is one of those parts of the DNA of a hunter, part of that legacy that passes through all of us, that whether we realize it or not, that's part of what we inherit when we decide we're going to be a hunter. And I mean, I mean, we're just starting. You're you're two years old at this time, Jim. And <laughs> but all of these things come forward to a point today where I think you talk about depletion and scarcity. We have so much abundance today. I think it's like a lot of things. Until it's gone, you don't appreciate what you have, and we never want to see it gone. But. It's well, and I think it's also good to remember that we were not that far removed from the, I guess what I'd call the inspirational leaders for the idea of conservation. And for that, I'm going back to Theodore Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, Grinnell, Muir, yep. those guys. Yep. The philosophers and the thinkers and the people that said, wow, you know, we are... Um, we are, in fact, destroying this continent faster than any other people in human history. Yeah. And uh, that sort of ideological and philosophical underpinning goes into the dirty 30s, and these guys conclude, well, there is a way out, but we have got to put our shoulders to the wheel. Right. And, uh, well, I mean, history history doesn't lie. They're, a good example would be Elk in Montana. When, when Theodore Roosevelt was out here, and he has his conservation epiphany in Mon, you know, largely in Montana. But we had like about five thousand elk hiding out in the wildest places we had. Yeah, and now we've got one hundred and fifty thousand. Right. When Franklin Roosevelt comes along with the dirty thirties period, we triple that number to about fifteen thousand. And then, as Randy just pointed out, now we're out those years from Franklin Roosevelt, and we increased that number ten by a factor of ten to one hundred and fifty thousand neighborhood. So, uh, yeah. so we go back eighty years to when you were born. Let's go back eighty years from then. So we're two lifetimes. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt wasn't even born then. He was born what three years later? He was born years? in eighteen eighty-five or eighteen fifty-eight. Or fifty-eight, yeah. correct? Eighteen fifty-eight. Okay. Uh, so if you backed up, you know. The, if you took a guy who was 80 years old and when you died on the day I was born, he would predate uh, TR by three years. Uh, three years. Yeah. If you took it back a third person, he would predate the Declaration of Independence. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I, that third person could have been a 30 year old Native American buffalo hunter when Lewis and Clark came into Montana. Yeah. That's the range through the time timeline where we take a continent, strip it of its wildlife resources, and then have a conservation epiphany. And we have it right out here in eastern Montana, out on the northern plains and in the Cabinet Mountains where T.R. went goat hunting and a few other episodes like that. But in a short seven-year span there, like from 83, uh, 83, 
when T.R. comes out to shoot one of the last buffalo. He's a 24-year-old New York State legislator. He comes out on the second train across the Continental Rail Line that goes through southern Montana. The first train drove the Golden Spike. The second train brought a 24-year-old New York State legislator wanting to kill a buffalo. He hunts for over a week. He picks up a a guy named Joe Ferris to be his guide. Uh, just picks him up off the street of Little Missouri, North Dakota. They go hunting for over a week, have some miserable experiences, but he finally finds a lone bull, and he's on a tributary to the Little Missouri River called Little Cannonball Creek, just inside the Montana Territory. So he shoots that buffalo in Montana, does a war dance around the fallen bull, and then he gives Joe Ferris a hundred bucks, uh, but he just wanted to kill a buffalo. Now that's eighty-three. Four years later, and there's lots of stories in between here, but he has this conservation epiphany where he forms a nonprofit hunter organization, eighteen eighty-seven, for the restoration of big game and the introduction of the sporting code. So we went from a utilitarian wildlife killer or in a commercial killer to uh, a group of people that understood the sporting code, adopt the conservation ethic, and begin the restoration process. And that all plays out on the Montana landscape. And, and what you're referring to in 1887 is the formation of the Boone and Crockett Correct. Club. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And the, so at that time... Nobody in the world, let alone in the United States, had in their mindset the idea of conservation. There, there was no such thing as a conservation ethic at that time. Well, there were guys uh, talking they called the Concord Transcendentalists, right? Having having meetings and discussions in the Boston Commons, and that's like Emerson, Thoreau, Thoreau. and Agassiz, and uh, you know some of the heavier thinkers. But uh, in part, that's where I had my own conservation epiphany one time. I was at a wildlife conference, disagreed with the things the speakers were saying. (laughs) Imagine that. And then I pulled a book out of my briefcase at 3 in the morning in this hotel in downtown Boston. And the book was called Speaking for Nature. And it was talking about these guys I just mentioned and how they had this conservation image. And I'm thinking, here I am, three blocks from the Boston Commons where these people had their debates, listening to these people who are off talking about making wildlife a commodity. To be bought and sold. To, to be bought and sold. Back where the buffalo hunters are back. They were back. <laughs> and, it's the, and it's the curse of our generation because now this marvelous public resource restored as part of the public trust mm-hmm. uh, is attracting the contemporary buffalo hunters who want to commercialize on this thing. Right. And that puts a lot of friction out there for people who just don't understand that this is a public resource. Right. And, th- <laughs> and that's where politics enters this. And Dan and Giannis know that I don't shy away from politics at all. So we're going to talk a little bit of politics here, Jim. But we're going to talk about it in the context of uh, 
uh, Roosevelt. Okay. I mean, he was what, governor of New York in 1900? Or was he lieutenant uh, governor? He spent one year in the governor's mansion after he came down off of San Juan Hill. Right. And the Republicans needed a candidate. He agreed to be that candidate because Tammany Hall in New York, which he was familiar with as a New York state legislator, right. was so corrupt. Right. And uh, so he gets to be the governor of New York and this is like in 1900 right and and at One the time right at the time in New York you got to understand this is when Carnegie Rockefeller mm-hmm. you know all all of those guys who else am I miss Morgan those guys have this idea that you know New York is the home of a lot of this trading and commerce and we got this crazy guy there we got to find a place to relegate him to a broom closet. The Republican so, Party boss said, I don't want the bastard raising hell in my state any longer. I want to bury him. Right. So they make him vice president of the candidate with McKinley. McKinley. It was McKinley's second term, right? Yes, yeah. McKinley's second term. And so these guys think they're going to shut up Theodore Roosevelt. He's this wild, crazy hunter, conservation cowboy, and they got to find a place to put him. So... As much as Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Morgan were competitors, they looked at Roosevelt as a threat and said, we got the money, we're going to buy Roosevelt's position as vice president, and we'll be rid of that guy. Because vice president was where you went, that's where you sent people to die their po- a slow political death. Theodore's own words upon experiencing that office was this office is nothing but the fifth wheel to the coach. It's on it's the road to nowhere. <laughs> or to oblivion, I think he said. And uh so little did they know no. that in September of what, nineteen oh one in Buffalo? Leon's old guys shoots McKinley. <laughs> yeah. And after what, eight or nine days he McKinley dies. dies. Right. And the Republican Party boss on the train going back to Washington with McKinley's body. I told uh, he told a reporter. He said, "I told McKinley it was a mistake to nominate that wild man. Now look, that damn cowboy is president of the United States. <laughs> that was a national party boss. Uh, you think a guy from Ohio? Yeah. So it's it's interesting to see how politics in, in all of this has built such a crazy path along the way that we as hunters." kind of back away from politics we, we really we're loners we really don't like it it's a morass it's it's illogical not that everything is logical but mm-hmm. if, if we look at our legacy of conservation we also have to look at you know what there's been some political events along the way that have been very fortuitous to hunting and conservation in america and those people wanting to bury Theodore Roosevelt in the dark dungeons of politics <laughs> was one of those events that yeah. was just really, really fortunate for the idea of conservation in this country. So, well, that's that's uh, you know all true, and uh, the Boone and Crockett Club, right from the start, you know, was working in the political se- uh, sector. And one of the things, early things they accomplished in 1891 was to get the president authority to set aside national forest reserves. Right. 
and Gifford Pinchot was all a part of this. He was a part of it when Roosevelt had this brief tour as governor in New York State. And Pinchot was America's forester, and he had the idea of forestry, and he watched you know, the desecration of the early logging in the eastern and, and into the Midwestern states. And, uh, and, you know, the lake states were just being yep. pillaged uh, by cut out and move on logging. And when Roosevelt was in the capital of New York, Pinchot would go to visit him and they would talk. First, they would spar. They would box with each other. <laughs> and then they would talk conservation and forestry. And so it was quite a relationship. Uh, and, get, and Pinchot was a part of the Boone and Crockett mix as well. And the fact uh, to protecting the nation's forests was kind of a common cause they had with the restoring of wildlife. And uh, that was, you know, they were partners from their inception, and we battle to this day yeah, you know, so. over wildlife habitat in the national forests. I want you to finish with the one part about Roosevelt and Pinchot and their sparring and what the end result of that was for Roosevelt. Well, the end result was he was knocked off his somewhat sturdy pins <laughs> by Gifford Pinchot. But the really the final analysis of that thing was one of the biographers pointed out that Roosevelt continued this desire to be a pugilist into the White House. Uh-huh. And at one point, he was sparring with a cadet from West Point and took a shot to the eye and was blinded in one eye. Detached his right hand. Yeah, right. And he never told anybody about it because he didn't want that, that soldier to feel uh, guilty or whatever. So the, the interesting part about Roosevelt is he was such a maverick. He, he epitomizes the approach hunters have had to politics. He didn't care really about parties one way or the other. It was really about what's best for the landscape, what's best for the wildlife, and what's best for America, as, as he would always say, for those in the womb of time, those yet unborn. Right. And his vision was so long-term. And here we are, history has this unfortunate pattern of repeating itself and we have the politics of today measured by what did the poll say on monday we better react to it on tuesday and we as hunters kind of reject that notion because conservation doesn't happen in a week it happens over generations and over time and again we've got political parties trying to pull one way or the other and we're trying to do what's right for wildlife and Roosevelt was kind of our example to follow in that. And not that any of us are going to end up on Rushmore, <laughs> but isn't it interesting that, that a guy who got thrown out of his own political party because he was so adamant about his conviction to what was best for the people, what was best for the landscapes, got him thrown out of his own party. But none of his party friends are on Rushmore. And as you pointed out to me many times, He's the only guy of that time that everyone yelled and screamed at and called the crazy cowboy. Mm-hmm. He, he's the one who America said deserves to be on Rushmore. Yeah, and it goes, uh, there's a lot of history in, in Theodore Roosevelt. And for, so he gets to be the president because McKinley gets shot. The party bosses, you know, would, wouldn't uh, ever have selected him. So he, when 1904 comes along, he has to run on his own for the presidency. 
And I think one of the most interesting thing that happens in that campaign is that the New York Sun at the time, a conservative newspaper, editorializes in his favor. And the editorial starts out with, he has ruled his party against its will. <laughs> and it concludes by pointing out that there was nothing more important to America than the conservation ethic that Theodore Roosevelt has introduced to the country. But he wins that election in 1904 by the largest margin in American history. Then he makes his biggest mistake in his political history by saying he will not run for another term. He had that choice, but he said the custom of serving just two terms is one he would honor. He served most of McKinley's, all of his own. He goes off to Africa hunting, and he's hunting white rhino in the Congo. And a native runner comes out across the savannah with the news that Roosevelt's successor, Taft, had fired Gifford Pinchot. And Roosevelt had left Pinchot behind in charge of this conservation ethic and that he had embedded in the people. And then Roosevelt, when he's touring Europe on the way home from his year-long safari, uh, Gifford Pinchot sneaks over there and briefs TR on what had happened and what was going on to all these reforms he had put in place, including conservation. And... Two weeks after he meets with Pinchot, Roosevelt gives this fiery speech about the man in the arena. And that he gives that speech in the Sorbonne in France. <laughs> but when you think about it, what he was thinking about was getting back into the arena. He enters the political campaigns of 1912. He runs uh, as a Republican. They hold 12 primaries that year. Roosevelt wins nine of the 12. La Follette of Wisconsin won two. Taft, the incumbent, won one. <laughs> and then at the convention in Chicago, the party bosses select Taft and deny Roosevelt. And they march across town chanting, Thou shalt not steal, form the Progressive Party, and a.k.a. the Bull Moose. Yeah. A reporter said, how do you feel? And he said, I feel strong as a bull moose. And so that's where that came from. And he becomes the progressive candidate, 1912, finishes second. Taft finishes a distant third. And Wilson becomes the president of the United States. And uh, it was quite a exciting period in in American history. And so that kind of started in motion back to when you were talking about how in the dirty 30s we were only what 1912 we're only 23 years right. removed from that that period when did roosevelt die 1919 1919 so you're 60 years old yeah he he's you know 15 years past his death now this seed that was planted about conservation ethic across an entire continent as you said mm-hmm is starting, to, even in the driest and dirtiest of times. It didn't die when he did. Right. <laughs> and it didn't take much fertilizer and much water mm-hmm. for that seed to turn into something amazing. And we talked about Pittman Robertson. When did Ducks Unlimited form? In 37. 37. And then the, all of the, you were talking about how all the, how Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, called together all of the, 
the wildlife group, the federations in right. the country, and that became the well, national Well, there weren't law. any federations in the country yet, but that was the dream of Jay okay. Norwood Ding Darling, yeah. who was a political cartoonist out of Iowa, but a very conservative person, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in political philosophy. Yeah. But he could see what had to happen, and it had to be from the grassroots in a democracy. And that was the beauty of this whole thing, the the democratic uh, relationship we have in this country with one another and with our government uh, blossomed in the toughest of times. It's kind of like a flower in the desert, you know. But the boys said, we can do this, you know. And this is bigger than you know than any one of us but it's valuable to all of us and uh, you know the prior traditions the traditions roosevelt and and his contemporaries looked at was the european model where hunters belonged or hunting was a privilege of royalty and and privilege of land ownership but in america that changes in as early as 1842 where the court starts saying that those things that belong to the king in, a, in this uh, democracy, because of our Declaration of Independence, passed to the people. And so the king's deer became the people's game. And that sort of gets resurrected during the Roosevelt era, where they say, okay, conservation in a democracy has got to be spread across the whole spectrum and uh, it it was, and it did, and it, and the people were responsive to it. You know, I mean, there was no more popular man on earth than Theodore Roosevelt. People listened to him, and they believed in him because a he was talking something that was so basically logical, and it made sense to everybody. Yeah, and so they had no probably big trauma standing up in those worst hard times, saying we can do this. And uh, by God, they set us on this course. And and so since then, we start now, let's move forward and we start by when does Jim become a graduate of a fish and wildlife program and become an employee of the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks or at the time Montana Fish and Game? <laughs> well, I don't, very easy to get too distracted right in here, but <laughs> I come to Montana in 1953 and I had promised a boss that I had worked for back in the Midwest I would come back the next season and it was a job in a private fish hatchery okay so i went back the summer of 54 but the summer of 55 i stayed okay and so other than two years of military time from that brief introduction period it's all been in montana with a couple of years in Germany. And and then when I was in the military, I was trying to figure out how I could get to be a hunter in Germany. But I wasn't there long enough to, to take all the schooling. But I learned quite a bit about the, the, you know, the arrangement that they had. Yeah. And it passed from the sport of kings to the people, you know, to the landed. And uh, it was commercial all the way. And if I got to qualify as a hunter i'd have to be invited to go hunting and there were methods of doing that but i would get the trophy and the jaeger the hunter he would get the meat and that would go down to the local market i could go downtown and in this community in germany in bumberg 
and buy a hosen or a hare hanging there in the, in the meat market. Huh. And so that's how he made his living. And uh, at that time, this is in the, in the late 50s. And the well, thing was not for the for the people. It was for the landed and the privileged. So the, the you bring with that, I mean, some perspective then when you come to work for an agency in the United States, come back here, and people are at that time starting to see the result of this this commitment society led by hunters has made to conservation. Well, there's there's a little perturbation in here. And and (laughs) in the fish and game years, before it became fish, wildlife, and parks, the director of the fish and game department was hired by the commission. Not appointed by the governor. Not appointed by the governor. And he was a state employee, and he couldn't be just discarded without having a reason or just cause. Yeah. And so as long as he was, you know, focused on the mission, not cheating on his travel expenses or something, uh, you just couldn't dump the, <laughs> the director. And so we had, uh, and this was my formative years, and what Fish and Game did at that time was we went out on the street and we campaigned for a Stream Preservation Act to stop the channelizing of our trout streams. Yeah. It got it through the legislature and won this great victory by battling the political system. Yeah. And wore that as a badge of honor, but it sort of sets your brain into the motion that your job is to do what's right for wildlife. And you've got this strange arrangement here where uh, if you anger the political party, that's of no consequence. Right. Because you had, you had protection and you were representing the public interest and trying to manage the public trust, which was a concept we really never articulated until I was way down the road in my career on the way out, actually. Right. But never taught that stuff. We were taught biology. Right. So, but, what, but the progress we were making was by doing what wildlife needed and doing it with a good deal of vigor and following some advice that Gifford Pinchot gave that I never learned about till way, way, way later. But Pinchot said to his foresters, use the press first, last, and always. Keep this thing out on the street. And uh, that's what we did. So what you are laying out is how at that time, much different than it is today, game and fish agencies, our wildlife agencies, were insulated from the political process because the director was not a political appointment. He worked for a commission separate from the legislator. The, it, it was just a completely different dynamic of how politicians had a harder time influencing what you guys were doing for conservation, doing for wildlife, and doing for the people it, because of just the nature of how the institutions were established. And then over the course of time, the 70s and 80s, politicians say, hey, wait a second, we want these guys to be our puppets. And so they make directors to become governor appointments with legislative approval, and commissioners need senatorial or other legislative approval. Yeah, I think the commission always needed that, but nonetheless, it was uh, it was a conscious line was drawn in the sand where you're a wildlife professional, you represent wildlife. They don't get to vote, so they need representation because the people value those things. Yeah. And uh, 
they put in, uh, and that, and it wasn't just Montana. This right. was going on across clear across the, the nation. Yep. And it had to do, uh, in retrospect, I'm guessing that the more the more abundant wildlife became, the more we came to value it, and the buffalo hunters then get re- attracted to it. No way to try to capitalize on a public asset in a democracy. And that's the sort of the phase we're in now is to try to live with all this stuff uh, in a democratic fashion as it was uniquely designed in North America. Now, one of the things that one of my parting shots in Fish and Game was to organize the Governor's Symposium on the North American Hunting Heritage. Right. When was that? 92. 92? Okay. And then I leave in 93. Yeah. But that all started in in 1988. (laughs) Yeah. And in 88 and 89, we were shooting hand-held hunters were led to the buffalo leaving Yellowstone Park, killing every single one. And... That had, I don't quite remember how that had, how we had evolved to that point, but it was a... It was an eyesore. Publicly, anyone who watched the news in 1988 saw every night on the news hunters standing at the firing line in Gardner, Montana, with a Montana game and fish person escorting them. Or a park ranger. Right, saying, shoot that one. Yeah. It, It made for a very bad image of hunting. Right, and then Montana elected Stan Stevens to be the governor, and he appointed a new director. And at the first staff meeting with the new director, I had just been on a trip to Washington on another issue, but I got up and I said, is there anybody in this room? And this is all the regional supervisors, all the division administrators of the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Department then, Said, is there anyone in this room that thinks we're doing the right thing? And not a hand went up. Wow. And within a year, we had pulled out and backed off of that and struggle with it to this day. Yeah. So, one of the things, Dan and Giannis, you guys, have you fished or floated the Yellowstone River? Yep. I mean, yes, I have. Not. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of listeners here, I'm sure, have come out to Yellowstone. And a lot of them have probably driven on I-90, got off the interstate in Livingston, Montana, headed down to Gardner, Montana, and went in at the north entrance. And I want to use this as just an example of conservation and advocacy hunters have had. Not just, this is just one example, but it's, it's in everybody's backyard if they go to find these stories. And Jim, you are kind of the hellraiser of this movement (laughs) um and what it was is people wanted to put a dam on the yellowstone river and anyone who fishes or floats that now it's almost unimaginable i know Giannis, if you were down there if you could think about that being a reservoir instead of a river at this time and no it's one of the prettiest floats in the west and i first fished it maybe 15 years ago as a young fishing guide driving up from colorado to go on like a big fly fishing excursion floating that yellowstone through paradise valley and the views you get there there's something special about it and i I said to myself at that time this could be a place i could come back to maybe live for a while and it's funny now that i've ended up i'm still one pass away but i'm pretty close (laughs) yeah (laughs) so jim i 
I want you to kind of quickly tell that story because it, it talks about at a time, a different time when you as an agency person were able to speak on behalf of the fish and the streams and the people and not worry about getting relegated to a broom closet detail. Okay, the, the, the battle for the Yellowstone precedes this story because it had been debated before to put the block in at Allen Spur just south of, of Livingston, flood the Paradise Valley, and then you have, like every other western river, a uh, big river with a big dam. Uh, in 1972, we could see the developing energy crisis and the movement to turn Montana and uh, northeast Wyoming into the boiler room of the nation. So I had a, I was a division administrator in FWP. I moved a planning team into Livingston to begin gathering the database to which we could defend the Paradise Valley. Everything changes when the Arabs embargo oil and the federal government and the industry put out a thing called the North Central Power Study, which would have made those two corners of the Wyoming and Montana of the nation's boiler room. And it was accompanied by a, a study called the Montana-Wyoming Aqueduct Study, which would have diverted the one-third of the average flow of the Yellowstone down there to cool this thing. And then we spread out our uh, resources and built our resources to gather a database on the whole river uh, to address that. And that was 72. In 1978, this is now all coming to culmination. The legislature was quite progressive in that era. We rewrote the mining law. We rewrote the reclamation law. We rewrote the Water Quality Act. We put a moratorium on industrial, major industrial withdrawals from the Yellowstone, all politically legislated. And then we applied for an in-stream flow reservation for the Yellowstone River to be designated in-stream for all time. And when we drew that model, the it precluded the building of a dam. And, and so people understand, in-stream reservation means we're going to guarantee X number cubic feet of water stay in the river for fish. Five and a half million acre feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like Jim knew that. But yeah. any, so, but, at any rate, we could come down to the climax, and the climax was the Board of Natural Resources had to decide whether they would make that allocation of an industry of fish. fish, wildlife, recreation, and water quality. All this was into all on a, within a state level in yeah, Montana? All at the state level. And at the time, there was a whiskey company in Kentucky that was going to introduce a new brand of whiskey. And they were going to introduce this whiskey uh, with a tennis tournament. And the name of the whiskey was Yellowstone Mellow Mash. You're kidding me. I'm not making this up. How could I make this up? (laughs) A guy named Tom Perro of Trout Unlimited said to Glenmore, why don't you... Uh, make an investment in preserving the Yellowstone River to introduce Yellowstone Mellow Mash whiskey. And so we tied some ends together, and the whiskey company gave us 40 or 50 grand to hold a press tour. (laughs) 
<laughs> and we hired an outfit. Uh, an outfit was hired called Rand Public Relations out of New York City. And in September of 1978, and we picked September because we wanted to get after right after the fall equinox so that the Paradise Valley could have a fresh dusting of snow and the cottonwoods would be golden. Yeah. And we bullseyed that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have everybody from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal, uh, Life Magazine, the whole works, uh, all the hunting fishing journals, and we have this press tour in September of 1978. And all these stories come rolling out of the you know New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and in the December of 78 issue, and this is the month the board has to make their decision, we nailed 10 pages of full color in Life magazine. Oh, wow. <laughs> Great River in Crisis was the title. And, and long story short. Long story short is that when you get the message to the people, these things are so valuable that you will prevail. And if you want to get hunters and anglers there, have a whiskey celebration, <laughs> right? Well, we, we had a big, we had a you know breakfast in Billings. We flew these guys over the coal fields and over uh, Yellowtail Dam, landed them in Livingston carted them up to Chico for the overnight, had the morning presentation of our data and stuff, and then the guides from the Yellowstone River, led by an old guide named Ray Hurley, he had a guide and a boat for every journalist that was there. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it, it scored. And so I, I just want people to think about... The Yellowstone River, isn't it the longest undammed river in North America? Lower, lower, lower 48. 48. And what a valuable resource that is to our country, to all the small communities along the river, and how that would have changed forever if not hunters, anglers, and concerned citizens engaging themselves in a process that is allowed in the United States. I talked to my friends in Canada. They're like, you have no idea. We don't have the rules and the laws and the opportunity to protest, to, to create change like you guys do in the States. And I think we as hunters have a tendency to overlook that. It's And it's back to when we did the first podcast, you guys, Dan and Yana, said, Randy, how do we engage in this? We, we don't really know. We're young. We're, we haven't been doing it for however many years you've been doing it, Jim, and, <laughs> or the 25 years I've been doing it. And I guess the point of this podcast is I want people to understand that this, regardless of what the politicians want to say, this is still our freaking wildlife. This is still our landscape. And if ever there's a cold, dead hands issue, it's this conservation legacy that we have. And if we're going to sit here and let the politicians direct it, allocate it, repay political debts with it, we're completely walking away from the legacy that what you just said is an example yeah. of how America is this unique place that the wildlife belongs to the people and we get to be the ones who say what happens with it. Regardless of what the politicians in there, as you've called them, the modern-day buffalo hunters, you know, the people who want to come to the market and yeah. deplete the resource for their private benefit, regardless of what they say, 
we as the people really are the owners of the wildlife in this country. Yeah, and they've been described all through history. We used to call them the robber barons. Yeah. <clears throat> and now we call them something else, but they were there from the start. I mean, they were the ones that were so adamant that Theodore Roosevelt had to be bottled up and hidden because he was practicing democracy as Randy just described it. You you get to participate. You got to participate. And ultimately, you do get the vote. And... There's been you know, some incredible stories about how the political representatives of the robber barons through all of conservation history <coughs> have uh, asserted themselves. And <clears throat> in fact, my favorite story is 1907, Roosevelt's building the forest reserves because the Boone and Crockett Club had lobbied through the authority for presidents to create forest reserves. And he takes a Forest Service system, which at the time was 40 million acres. He comes, when he leaves office, it's uh, about 190 million acres. So he's quadrupling the size of the national forest. In the process, uh, politicians from Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado sneak through uh, an amendment to an ag appropriations bill to forbid him from putting any more land in the forest in those six western states. And he's got, and because it's a rider on an appropriations bill, they've got the votes to override a veto. So he's sitting there with seven days to sign or veto that bill. In those seven days, he and Gifford Pinchot get together, create 21 new national forests, add 16 million acres to the forest system. No, 160 million. No, 16, 16 million. million. Okay. In the uh, in those six western states, signs the executive orders uh, to do that, and then he signs the bill forbidding him from ever doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they call the midnight forest? The midnight forest. Okay. The cabinets. The Custer, you know, parts of the Rocky Mountain Front, all that stuff comes in at the, in his midnight forests. Uh, amazing, amazing. And what was the story. reason that they didn't want any more? The robber barons wanted to own they all just, of America. That was it. Yeah. yeah. And it, still do. Yeah, and it sounds I very... Mean, we're just talking about it in contemporary news, you know. Uh, taking the Forest Service and our forest lands, turning them over to the states, and the states can decide what to do with them. And uh, the Sagebrush Rebellion during the Reagan areas, it comes back, it's constant. Yeah. And of course, that's why what Randy's pointing out, the vigilance of the hunting and fishing community likewise needs to be constant. And... We need uh, an environment where people aren't hearing these stories for the first time because those stories are what people will remember. And it reminds them that, by God, you've got to participate. And don't go you know, letting wedge politics drive you into some little narrow corner where you overlook the value of this great American achievement. Those stories, and we could sit here for this whole podcast. <laughs> And 
not even touch on a fraction of the stories that represent the legacy we as hunters have inherited. Yeah. And it came from generation to generation to generation. And now I'm 50 years old looking at it saying, you know what? I want to make sure that these stories get told. I want to make sure that the legacy I've felt handed to me gets handed to someone else to collectively to this group of people and they appreciate it and understand it. And they're going to hand it to someone else in even better shape. And now I'm going to get into some unfiltered stuff, Jim. <laughs> so bear with us, folks. I, I I went out to the Hunt Talk website, and uh, some people have read your books. Jim, Jim is a prolific writer, and he wrote a book called Beyond Fair Chase, which any of you who've been through hunter education in the last 15 years, 20 years, a lot of states use Jim's book, Beyond Fair Chase, as kind of the manual by which they teach the hunter ethics slash hunter behavior portion of the hunter education program. Where can, I, where can I get those books now if I wanted to? Can you get them on Amazon? Them? Oh, I suppose. But yeah. I got some in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> so you can go to Amazon and you, in fact, I'm going to put a link out on Hunt Talk. So if you go to hunttalk.com, I'm going to put a link out there in our podcast forum that says here are where you can get Jim's books and I'll I'll show people where they can buy them, but I'm probably going to send them to Amazon. But here's the point I'm getting at. And in today's world, we always talk about, and, and this is a question that one of the members on our forum has. Everyone wants to talk about, oh, don't fracture the hunting community. Oh, don't divide, blah, blah, blah. And it gets into this ridiculous thing called shooting of penned animals. They like to call it high fence hunting. It's I don't call it that because it's not even hunting in my mind. So we're going to piss some people off before we're done with this. <laughs> but, Jim, you've spoke on the topic. You've written on the topic in Montana in the, when was it, 2002 that there was the ballot initiative. There was a state. I-143. I can yeah. remember the number. Yeah. Anyhow, Montana, the, the hunters in Montana, tired of the the disease issues, the, the multiple things that we were dealing with in Montana as pin shooting operations started to proliferate here. Um, we had bovine tuberculosis outbreaks. We had escapement. We had, and what ended up happening is the, the groups that were uh, uh, participating in this, the industry, ended up convincing the legislature to transfer authority from the Game and Fish Department to the Department of Commerce. And this is a pattern that isn't just Montana, and that's why I want to talk about it. Is we just saw the big argument in Indiana, we've seen the arguments in Wisconsin, and everyone defends it by saying, oh, don't split the hunting community about this. You've written about it, you, and you can say whatever you want on this topic, Jim, but you're very eloquent in talking about how this impacts the image of hunting. It, it impacts our social capital, our political capital, and we can't just let someone hold up the private property rights flag as a defense to it when it is that critical to what we as hunters have stood for and what's at at stake and at risk for us. So this is a question off the forum, but I'll let you just go unfiltered. Okay, unfiltered is if you look at the stories we started with, with uh, 
the formation of the Boone and Crockett Club for the introduction of the sporting code. And, and it was a relationship that was being established between the hunter and the hunted. And it, it in, implicit in that was the concept of fair chase, that the animal had opportunity you know, to survive, and that hunters had a responsibility to see to the welfare of the wildlife. Is that sporting code still like a part of the Boone and Crockett Club? Like, can you yeah, find have, the sporting yeah, codes they have written their, somewhere? Their fair chase statement, right? It's out there on their website. And and Boone and Crockett, I, I'm you've been a longtime member. I've been a lifetime associate for ten years almost. They've been writing a lot about this, about the disease issues, about what Jim's going right. to talk about there here. Was, the, there was a brief argument in the Boone and Crockett Club about this. Uh, Hunting behind the high fence, you know, the intensively managed game, they called it. But they, fortunately, they rejected that appeal. And part of the problem was a good percentage of their regular members were from Texas, where they have a sort of a different uh, standard or tradition or bad habit or whatever you want to describe it. But in Montana, of course, we were interested in the whole idea of not tolerating this captive shooting and calling it hunting because it flat degraded the whole activity. And so we launched a citizen and ballot issue campaign and were able to to set that off limits. And to back to the Boone and Crockett Club, they had this internal discussion now. I, I mean, they kind of rejected that, as right. you said. Boone and Crockett Club is one of the most outspoken critics of what pen shooting is doing to hunting right and and they need a big pat on the back for taking this issue on when a lot of the other organizations we look to are out doing other things well sure they're shooting captive animals yeah bird farm you know shooting and yeah and so but do you want to i'm going to just briefly drop into the founding people in the boone and crockett club like theodore roosevelt this was not an alien concept right from the start. And his words were, and the rich who are content to buy what they have not the skill to get by their own exertions, these are the enemies of game. And that was wow. how many years ago? 150 years ago? Yeah. So here we are today talking about this the same thing and how it impacts hunting. Right. Roosevelt pointed out they are the enemy of right. game. Exactly. And, and this is for the and other words of his. This is for the average man and the average woman who make up the body of the American people. And this goes again to that democracy and, uh, and so democracy when, of the wild. When Montana had that ballot initiative, it passed. And then it ended up in court multiple times saying it was a taking, saying it was a you know, violation of property rights. And the courts rejected it every time. Yep. And what was the basis the courts gave for that? Well, the public trust. That right from the, its inception, our relationship with nature was based on the fact that those privileges and regalities that belong to the crown by virtue of our declaration of independence, passed to the people, that we are the sovereign. And therefore, the king's deer became the people's game. And it's hard to defend because uh, now in our capitalistic economic system, we're facing a much bigger test than uh, 
than we faced like in the Dust Bowl because it is inherent in our society and culture. If there's a resource, somebody wants to make money on it. And whether it's you know money for access or money for services or money for anything, uh, that will be our biggest challenge. Right, trying to keep that balance of where do we represent the beneficiaries, the citizens of the public trust, versus how do we have a public trust arrangement that operates in a society that is based on capitalism and property rights. So the court said the state had a compelling interest and rejected the notion that this was a taking. Yeah. And so Montana, now you can raise these animals in a pen, but you can't shoot them. Right. And so all these other states, and, and it gets in the whitetail world, this really gets to be a knockdown, drag out, you know, blood against blood, <laughs> brother against brother kind of argument. And I don't know if you, these guys produce the Meat Eater TV show and the Meat Eater podcast. Have you guys taken on or discussed that issue at all? Have you? Certainly. Steve, yeah. Steve does a lot. Yeah. And, and I've read some of Steve Rinella's writings on it and I pretty much feel the same way. It's to say that this is dividing the hunting community, first of all, makes the false assumption that this activity is hunting. This is parasitic to the hunting. We are the noble host that that activity needs. If it weren't for fair chase hunting and hunting for food and, and all the reasons we hunt in America, if that pen shooting of zoo animals did not have us as its shield and its defense, it would have been outlawed and gone a long time ago. Sure, and what they're selling is the value our society has put on these animals because they are wild. Right. That's why we value them. That's why we desire them. That's why we chase them, and that's why we care for them. Right. And, and for me, I... I, so they, I, what you're saying, Jim, is that as soon as you call them a farm animal, they'd lose their value. Exactly. I mean, yeah. what, what would be their value? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in our country, you cannot own wildlife until you've shot it and placed your tag on it. Then you become the owner of it. Just the opposite of inside the pen. Someone says, that's my personal property. Right. I can do what yeah. I want with right. it. <laughs> and the irony to me is all of these industry trade associations, they want to be governed by the state ag departments but yet they want to call themselves hunting bullshit <laughs> if you were hunting you would be your oversight would be by a game and fish department not an ag department i mean all of this and so people are like randy why would you even bother talking about this and the reason i want to talk about it is part of it i'm sick and tired of the hunting community being afraid to have very important discussions of our future and our value system and run and hide every time someone pulls out the, the trump card of, oh, you're dividing hunters. I, if, if we're dividing hunters by having this discussion, fine. Call me guilty. I'll, I'll confess to being guilty. But I don't think we're dividing hunters because the people, with, and I'll make some exceptions of, you know, there are, Mobility impaired people, there are, you know, other folks who are not going to be able to go and hunt the way I do a backpack hunt in the mountains. And, and I get that. They, you know, for, for them to get out of bed in the morning, if you're, you know, a, uh, you know, injured person, just for them to get out of bed in the morning is 
probably a tougher task than me to climb a mountain. So, so I get that. And that's who they always parade out there as their defense for this activity. But it's, uh, last I read, it's like a $4 billion industry. Uh, I don't think the double amputees are the ones who are paying the $4 billion to keep this industry going. So to me, that's a straw man argument. And, and I don't want to get into that little straw man argument. I want to talk about the bigger piece of it. Now and then they and, roll out the aged. Right, yeah. The guys that, yeah. <laughs> so I'm very always honored to get up and now say at my 80th year <laughs> that I believe in wild land preservation and wild places. And the last thing in the world I would wish for is a generation of Montanans that were young and didn't have wild country to be young in. Right. And if I, if I as an aged person, uh, would make such a demand like that, I couldn't live with myself. Yeah. It, so we get to this point of this discussion, and, and it's we could pick 100 different topics in the hunting world that someone is going to try to stop the argument by saying, oh, you're dividing hunters. Yeah, I was just going to ask, maybe is there an example, Jim, of that that's in your you know, the last 40 years where you can, like, another big topic that were, it was often like that trump card came out over and over again, but somehow you guys worked through it? Well, yeah, it was in Elliston within, the, within this month. <laughs> uh, and the, the room was full of people that wanted to road and motorize the remaining wild lands of the continental divide west of town here and over on the little Blackfoot side. And one of the speakers uh, got up and qualified himself as being well, 80 years old, and uh, he just needed to have uh, motorized access to all this stuff. And so I was honored to get up and give a counterpoint to that. And just the notion that because my generation has had all this, that we would deny it to the next generation simply because we got old. Uh, was maybe it's un-American. <laughs> yeah, and so the, and then you, know, you read T.R. and he's talking constantly about the strenuous life. You know, and that's that was part of it. That's part of where the value came from. You didn't go pick those elk antlers off off a tree somewhere. That's not the low not the low hanging fruit. This is the best we can offer uh, posterity, yeah. and uh, to cheapen it would be simply unacceptable. So, and it gets into that same trump card. No matter, just and today, it's almost like Vogue that you say, "Oh, Dan, you you can't talk about that because you are dividing the hunting community." And yeah, there are times where we let our personal preferences kind of go too far, and and we say because that's how I do it, that's the only way. But bigger scope discussions that have a significant impact on how society views us, how society finds a place for hunting. We need to have these discussions if if uh, it's impacting that. Because is was it Steve who wrote recently that uh, hunting only is going to exist at the at the pleasure of society or, or, or something like that? Anyhow, that. We as hunters need to be cognizant of how society views us because we are the minority. We are, our activity is going to continue only to the extent that society finds us valuable. And every time there's an anti-hunting campaign, there's an anti-this campaign that hurts hunting, what is 
the image that gets rolled out there. It's some drooling deer in a pen over a pile of food with some guy standing there, and it's got like eight arrows in it. It looks like a pin cushion. I mean, this activity doesn't do anything for conservation. I mean, you're buying your permits from the landowner in most cases. I guess in some states you still need a hunting license. It It's not you know, helping landscapes. It's introducing diseases. It results in escapement where we end up with diluted gene pools of our native wildlife. I mean, I can go on and on and on. And and then comes the argument, and this is the one when we were having our big argument in Montana, because after the ballot initiative passed, um, then our legislature thought they needed to bail out the, the folks who had these shooting pens. So the legislature had a proposal that was going, I think it was going to pay six, put in $6 million in a pool for the property takings that this ballot initiative had, even though the court said otherwise. And they were going to take it out of Pittman-Robertson money, which we would have, <laughs> or, or we took it out of license money, so we would have lost the Pittman-Robertson matching right. money on that, which would have been like another 12 or $18 million. So, and my point to them was, you know what? If, if these people really want a true market, let's go out and let's have the, the market risk. If they say there's no disease, let's force them to be bonded for the disease risk. And every legislator I emailed and talked to said, well, that would bankrupt the industry. <laughs> I'm like, thanks for proving my point. If there is no risk to these shooting pens to, for CWD, to bovine tuberculosis, to everything else, then bonding shouldn't cost any more than a toner cartridge for your printer. But if the risk is super high, guess what? It probably will put them out of business. So let's go to the market. Let's figure it out. Let, them, let the, the experts in risk management sort this out. And every time you propose that to the industry, they come back with the same comment. Well, that would bankrupt us. So in other words, you want us as society, you want us as hunters and our agencies to take on all of your risks that you're imposing on us, but you get to keep all the profits. I mean, that's a hell of a model. No that's wonder a, very, it's a, a very common model where you externalize all the other costs. Right. You, you internalize like what comes it. out of your smokestack or what you dump in the river. Yeah. Same, same classic pattern. Classic example. So anyhow, that's uh, the, uh, you've seen all this. You, you've watched it. And a part of it gets to a topic I've touched on and some of our members on the forum have talked about is their, uh, what would I say, disappointment in how media of today doesn't do its job. If, 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 and, and I'm part of media. I mean, here I am doing a podcast. Dan and Giannis, are, they produce a TV show like I do. And a lot of hunters today do not trust the, me, the hunting press, the hunting media, because hunting media is almost afraid of its own shadow at times. We're, well, we can do that. Some sponsor will complain or some subscriber will complain or, oh, gee, we'll get accused of splitting the hunting community. I mean, through your period of time, there were a lot of writers. I mean, this was before Al Gore invented the Internet. So there, there were a lot of writers in your time who were highly respected. And they were looked to for leadership. Today, media is a completely different thing than it was at your time. Well, it's marketing. It's not media. <laughs> <laughs> Paid media. Yeah. yeah. 
In fact, the, the one single theme that came out of the Governor's Symposium on the North American Hunting Heritage, which we formed in 1992, not to uh, challenge components of the fringe, but to focus hunting community on its own heritage. And the, the key message that came from that first conference and carried over through most of them was that the hunting community either leads or becomes irrelevant. Right. You know, and if you can't lead in, by trying to gather, you know, all, all colors of the sheep that masquerade as hunters, uh, that certainly cripples you as having the ability to lead. Because if you are totally commercially dominated, then you don't go and try to derail the North Central Power Study that would have depleted the entire Yellowstone River and and uh, vastly opened up the coal fields way beyond what we've got today. And God knows how much carbon we'd have up in that atmosphere now. And so I mean, that had 44 power plants targeted for your southeast Montana. We wound up with four. And, and so you, what you just said there, Jim, is important in today's world, leadership. Yeah. Hunters have got to where we have been or where we're at today because of leadership, not the lowest common denominator. Right. It's putting the target out there at a higher level, not aiming for the low target. Not but, taking aim at mediocrity and shooting low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, to me, that's, if, if any value comes of this podcast, not this one, but this entire Hunt Talk, Randy Newberg Unfiltered podcast, I want it to be that listeners understand that we got here today, not by accident, by a long series of decisions, of commitment, of, of, uh, absolute, unforgiveness to the cause of conservation and you and i this afternoon the reason i'm in helena you and i are going up to the capitol building here because there's a big celebration about a big public land project that just happened in it, it got completed in what seven or eight phases and across the west Across America, there are public land projects like this. In our part of the world and in the West, they're mostly led by the hunting community. And we're sitting here, and if I look out that window up there, well, now it looks like a rainstorm coming, but if I, I look so. <laughs> if I look to the Northwest, and you're not going to get off this podcast without telling this story, because you wrote a book about it, or a piece about it, called, I think, Shoulder to the Wheel. And anyone who's come to the Rocky Mountains is impressed and whether it's in Colorado, whether it's in Wyoming, any place the prairie meets the mountains is just stunning. And in Montana, we call that the Rocky Mountain Front. And from Helena all the way up to Banff National Park, it is so dramatic. It, it's the only place where grizzly bears leave the mountains and come way out on the prairie, yet today. And there was a time when people looked at that and said, that needs to be a ski hill. That needs to be a resort area. And and it's an area that we now call the scapegoat wilderness area that connects to what a lot of people know, the Bob Marshall Wilderness and the Badger 2 Medicine, which connect to Glacier Park. And uh, I want you to tell the story of how a hunter, a single <laughs> citizen, decided, you know what? Many of my friends, many of my neighbors are going to be pissed off at me. But this is so important to me and my grandchildren and their children that I'm going to raise a stink. 
And it's the Cecil Garland story. Well, it's way more than the Cecil story. And in fact, to start the Rocky Mountain front story, you go back to when the forest was created, 05 and 06, Theodore Roosevelt's in the White House. The first ranger to ride into the Sun River was a guy named Ehlers Coke. Ehlers Coke left a record that he hunted for 30 days in 05 and 30 days in 06. And he outlined all the country he hunted through there with rifle on my saddle, but with the exception of one mountain goat, never saw or got a shot at a single big game animal. In 60 days. In 60 days of hunting, 30 in 05, 30 in 06. Wow. Night, Rocky, night, Rocky Mountain Front. Yeah, you lucky yeah. SOBs that get to hunt it today, yeah. right? We're talking 1905 and 1906. Right. Not 2005. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but that's how bad it was. You know, on Theodore Roosevelt sitting in the White House, some of that land he'd set aside with the hope that we would come along and somebody would care enough to restore the wildlife. That starts with the Sun River Game Range. There was a guy named uh, Rathbone, who, who when the recovery starts occurring because of imposition and creation of fish and game departments and all that jazz, he calls, advertises for machine gunners to come up and shoot the elk. They're coming on his place. When was that? That was in the 20s? Uh, more, I'd have to look it up to give you the okay. exact date, but it leads to the formation of a citizen's group of hunters and uh, landowners called the Sun River Conservation Council. They, that leads to the acquisition of the Sun River Game Range, which was right next to Rathbone's place, and it was the first block that goes in. Then there's the Ear Mountain, the Blackleaf, the Pine Butte Swamp, and Nature Conservancy, other people joining. 100th anniversary of the Boone and Crockett Club's formation. They buy a ranch west of Depoyer, adding to this complex. Called the Rocky Mountain Front. Called the, the Rocky whole, Mountain uh, The complex is. In the mix of this is the Lincoln Scapegoat, known as the Lincoln Backcountry for years. And Cecil Garland ran a country hardware store, general store kind of place in Lincoln, Montana. He goes up there and blows on his elk bugle one morning and has this incredible response from all around him. <laughs> and he knew he had found what he had looked for, and he takes the oath that I will do everything I can to preserve it. Well, this thing got to the point where the Forest Service rolled out a plan for logging and roading through there. Cecil gets a hold of Congressman Jim Batten, who happened to be a Republican. Uh, and Batten calls the Forest Service and said, I need some time here. And they say, you ain't got time. The bulldozer's already unloaded at the, on the North Fork of the Blackfoot River. And his response was, I better have some time. <laughs> and that is, was a pivotal point. It got to the, in the debate that followed over the future of the Lincoln scapegoat, uh, got to the point where Cecil's store was boycotted. So we organized a buy-in. People from Great Falls, Missoula, and Helen that would go up and buy whatever you need on hardware out of Cecil's store. Did you guys go and do your Christmas shopping up yeah, there one year? we did. <laughs> anyway, fast forward a few years, and my boys are becoming Boy Scout age. And the scoutmaster, his gig was we go backpacking. 
And so we'd have these week-long backpacks. I'd backpack into uh, uh, this particular th- backpack trip was up the North Fork of the Blackfoot. And every trip like that, I would tell the stories to the scouts about how that's how Cecil, because he was an elk hunter, and those elk had spoke to him, and he found paradise, and he was going to do what he had to do to save it. And so when they come out of the wilderness with the kids, why well, the first place you go is a hamburger shop, you know. This hamburger shop happened to be right across the alley from Garland's Country Store. And I look out the window, and I'm seeing Cecil walking from in the alley to back to his house. <clears throat> I heard all the kids out into the street, and I said, boys, this is Cecil Garland. And not a sound. And on the bus ride back to Helena, I asked one of my sons, I said, why didn't you guys say something when I introduced you to Cecil? And he said, Dad, we thought you had to be dead to be in one of those stories. (laughs) (laughs) So I had resurrected Cecil. (laughs) But the point is, once again, a hunter, uh, just an ordinary citizen, stands up and says, this landscape, the animals dependent upon it, this conservation story in America is too important to not do what I can for the next generation. Right. And there's not a square inch out there that doesn't have the stories to it. Right. Everything. Cecil happened to be an incredible, naturally talented writer. I mean, he you read his testimony in front of Congress, it's like reading poetry. And it just was a natural talent he had. And so, I again, I, I live in Montana, so I'm aware of all these Montana stories. But if you live in Idaho, whether you lived in Arizona, New Mexico, Wyoming, it, it, Maine, there are stories about this in everybody's backyards. And the common theme is hunters, anglers, concerned citizens standing up and saying and doing something about it and not just accepting the fact that, oh, well, that's how it goes and falling to the common myth that this represents progress. The more, quote, unquote, progress we have, the more valuable all that we fight for becomes. And that Cecil's story just strikes me because I come from a little town smaller than Lincoln. And most people think of Lincoln, Montana, they think of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. That's where his, <laughs> that's where his little shack was. But really, if you go from Lincoln north, it is some of the most wild country. It's so wild that we can hunt elk there with a rifle in the rut starting September 15th, general tag. It doesn't matter. They're all the way to Yellowstone or to Glacier Park. That's the kind of country we're talking about. That, those are the reservoirs that have these age classes and create, what, how much opportunity is that? I mean, you can rifle hunt from September 15th to the end of November for elk on public land for nothing more than a tag. And it's the Cecil Garlands of the world that gave, that. That gave us that. And that's a story that hunters today need to understand. It's, and, and we can keep going on and on about this. And it, Dan, how are we doing on time? Well, close to wrapping up. I just want to add well, something you said at the very beginning of the gym that I think is maybe builds like a, a hope or something for the future, but how the story in North America of this huge success of uh, conservation and all this work that's been done and how it needs to go to a, um, a global level and how along the way this whole story was done by hunters and people connected to the land in the most basic level. 
that's a pretty it's a pretty big deal i mean it's it's a it's a pretty big concept and, and it, it gives me a lot of hope or it gives me uh some sort of grounding in, in history and in reality that people can do something well you're on a, the most important point in my life right now is how do we be, how does this become the norm in what you teach the next generation in in montana history all of history is taught from the perspective of how we exploit a place. I mean, we got statues and textbooks and everything on how the Berkeley pit was passed to our custody. Which is the biggest Superfund site in the world outside of Butte, Montana. <laughs> but we don't teach the history of the unbuilt dams. You know, there's no corner stone to Allen Spur Dam, which was not built on the Yellowstone, or High Cow Creek, which was not built on the Missouri, or Fort Benton on the Missouri, or Castle Reef on the Sun, on every river out there, Glacier View on the North Fork of the Flathead, Spruce Park on the South Fork, or on the Middle Fork of the Flathead, and to teach the story of something that didn't happen is just as important as reiterating the tiring economic argument of the creation of the Berkeley pit. And you ask a person, uh, any Montana person, total stranger, say, tell me about your state. Tell me about Montana. Where does that person's mind go? It goes to the wild places. It goes to the unchanged places. It goes to the restored places. You know, and most hunters that grab that gun and go out the door have no idea that that landscape was once barren. And with a little luck, I could show you deer tracks on the, in the street in front of my house. It's unpaved. <laughs> but, you know, there have been times when I've watched them. You know, I can show you where they've been nipping on my choke cherry hedge. Uh, that is pretty, pretty exceptional. And, and this city of Helena has an urban deer plan, an urban deer plan. It is not a liquidation it's to get them to hold them at a population level that people who enjoy the presence of the deer can enjoy it and people who got a problem with it nipping at their flowers can protect their flowers. Within city limits. Within the know. city limits of Helena, the state capital. I can have memories of a dragging elk off the hillside within view of the state capital. Which all of that is an example yeah. of conservation success. Right. Achieved yeah. not by, as you said, aiming for the lowest target and still hitting low. It's achieved by committing to all the other things. And and I just want, for the viewers who are, are listening to this, I don't want it to be so Montana-centric just because I live here, but I hunt New Mexico a lot. I love New Mexico. I go there. I go to the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Area. I go to the Gila Wilderness Area. And you see this same amazing conservation story because of local people wanting to preserve and conserve their habitat. I go to eastern Arizona. I go to northern Arizona. I go to western Colorado. I go to western Wyoming. I, I mean, I could sit here, of all the places I travel, and I'm fortunate that I get to go on you know 12 to 15 hunts a year, every place I go, because my show is all public lands, has a story that is so similar to what you've just said, Jim, and what we've spent the last hour or so talking about. And I want the people who live there to understand that this is your story. Whether you hunt or don't hunt, if you live there and it's part of your conservation ethic, your community sense of, of responsibility, this is your story. Don't let it be taken from you. It's, if, if there's anything that comes from this, I hope that's what people walk away from. 
And what I also want before I wrap up is a commitment from you <laughs> that we're going to do another podcast. And we're now that we've laid a lot of the history stuff, we're going to sharpen the blade a little bit here. And in the next podcast, we're going to talk about more of these issues because we didn't really we talked about the high pen shooting stuff. But you have written so well and have shaped the mind of how a lot of Americans think about hunter behavior, hunter responsibility. The next podcast, we're probably going to go chapter by chapter through Beyond Fair Chase. Better read it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyhow, Dan and Giannis, you guys got any things that we need to... Wrap up on Jim. You got any? Got one more. Thoughts? 1996. I went out to a place called Kyrgyzstan, and the Soviet Union had just broken up, and uh, the German Greens, Nacher Schutzbund, was interested in getting some of the Tian Shan Mountains into the Inter- International Conservation Reserve under the United Nations. And the other group that was on the fringe of this was the people who were marketing Marco Polo sheep hunts. And I spent 12 days over there and got into the wildest country I'd ever been in. I never saw a contrail, never saw a fence, never saw a game animal. Oh, really? And... It was a culture that had evolved in a wild, wild place. They were all domestic nomadic grazers. And we went from camp to camp and camp and stuff like that. They they had uh, one offering to take us on a helicopter flight to see the Marco Polo sheep. And they were getting 30 grand a year for hunting the mature rams. And that's a whole other series of stories there. But the fact was that wildlife had disappeared. And the landscape was there. The environment was there. And I asked elders once through a couple of interpreters going from English to Russian to Kyrgyz <laughs> what the uh, native wildlife was of these foothills and plains. And they couldn't, they didn't know. Wow. And, you know, that culture is thousands of years old. But wildlife disappeared from it. They're now trying to restore it and hang on to this one little moneymaker. And I tried to follow the money. And and I I didn't do very well at it because it got grafted away and and, uh, disappeared. Didn't end up invested back in conservation. And the conservation guys, the residuals I met at their university there, they had pretty much all been defunded when the Soviet Union broke up. And it was an interesting time there, and uh, when they found out that I was there to speak for the hunt, then my host got a little bit nervous. <laughs> but then I tried to figure out how long it would take me to walk home. <laughs> but that was an interesting experience, and... Uh, it was kind of an eye opener because you know they, the landscape was laying there. Our landscape was laying there too for a very brief period. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt shot that buffalo in 1883. He was stalking it through the rotting carcasses of the last slaughter. 
North Dakota had slaughtered 10,000 in August. He showed up in September. And to show how embedded all this is with our contemporary Montana scene, when I was writing Inherit the Rifle and Handbook, working with an illustrator who also ran a framing shop, who told me one day, I have a guy who comes in here a lot with memorabilia from the old bull moose party for framing. And I said, well, what's his name? And he said, Doug Ferris. And I come home and tell Gail, I said, I've got to find this guy, Doug Ferris. She said, let me make a call. We make a call. We find him uh, about, you know, 15 blocks away on Winnie Street in a rest home. It was Joe Ferris, Theodore Roosevelt's guide's grandson. Wow. The real punchline is he had been her next-door neighbor for 10 years. Gail's next-door neighbor. Gail's next-door neighbor, and they had never had cause to share the tale. The point is they're all around us. You can't go anywhere without finding them. What we've got to do is resurrect them and teach them. Yeah. Well, the way I want to close this podcast, Jim, is first of all thanking you for all you've done for conservation, not just in Montana, but across the country. But uh, I want to try and make what's been kind of a historical perspective a little more tangible for today. And it's an example that I'm going to give, and this is, yeah, me talking for the home team because I sit on the board of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. But in 1984 in Troy, Montana, a, a little town dependent upon logging and sawmills, four guys stepped forward and said, you know what? We aren't going to, we're not going to stand idly by while the elk disappear from the landscape. While their landscapes are harmed in the way that they saw happening. And these were guys, one of them owns one of the big logging companies in that part of the world, Charlie Decker. And once again, a hunter, which Charlie and Bob and all those guys are, steps forward irregardless of their own personal profitable interest maybe, looking at the landscape and say, yeah, maybe I could make more money doing this. But I'm more concerned about the future of elk and other wildlife for me, my kids, my grandkids. And from that, four guys in Troy, Montana, who mortgaged their homes, raid their children's college accounts, they start a group called the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And they started it just 31 years ago. Today it's got 205,000 members. And it's a leader in wildland conservation. And once again, it's another classic story of hunters not accepting the, the popular paradigm, putting their money where their mouth was and doing something about it. So those of you listening, thanks for listening. We're going to continue more of these discussions about how the future of your hunting and the future of conservation in America is your future. And I'm going to do everything I can to try give not just incentive, but ideas and thoughts about how you guys can make it better in your backyard and carry on what's been handed to you guys, all of us, as the collective conservation world, the collective hunting world, we in America are so lucky to have. Thanks for listening. Hunt Talk Radio, Hunt Talk Podcast, Randy Newberg Unfiltered. If you want to get all of our stuff, go to randynewberg.com.